Good morning, everybody. Hopefully we're doing okay. That's a good, good morning. So, well, I'll just give you a preview. I was going to hide what we're talking about for like five minutes and then like switch it so that you just don't get walk up. We were talking about money today. Uh, so it's, it's national day. You don't want to come to church day. Um, so we started a series last week entitled Consumed, the Endless Demands of the Monsters we worship. And we'll be here just for another three short weeks, and then we'll get back into our long journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And essentially, in this short series, we're talking about idolatry. And we used this definition last week from a pastor and author named Tim Keller, that an idol is anything more important to you than God, anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God, anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. We also looked at a quote from a church, early church theologian by the name of Augustine. He said, But living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. Here's the important part. To love things, that is to say, in the right order, so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved, or have a greater love for what should be loved less, or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more, or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. So everything in the right order. And so we, we talked about sort of this hierarchy of values, and the triangle represents the values in your life, and ultimately, God has to be on the top of it. It is not to say that an idol is anything that you love or really love or, or love dearly. It is to say that an idol is something that usurps that which should be on top, something that takes the space that only God ought to occupy. So you are to love things in their right order. You can love certain things more than you ought to, and you could love certain things less than you ought to. But a Christian life has rightly ordered love and affection and everything flowing from the top out of love for God. And we talked about how there's a sinister nature to idols because idols can be birthed out of good things. It's not just keep your eyes out for the evil things that are out to get you. So something as incredible and awesome as your children can become an idol if they begin to sit at the top of your hierarchy of values. In other words, they are the thing that matters most to you you can run into problems. And at first glance, you kind of might want to disagree. No, I love my kids more than anything. But if they're at the top, they are in your life, your functional God. They are functioning as a God in your life. They're the thing that matters most. Therefore, you will treat and interact with them in a way that treats them as a functional God. And your children cannot bear the weight of being your Lord and Savior. You put that weight and pressure on your children of them functioning as a God in your life, it not only damages you, but it may damage them and your relationship with them. And we've seen that, where there's like a, a smothering type of, kind of almost damaging type of, of love and attention that could be given to someone, and it ends up hurting them. Maybe another way to think about this is, is if you picture a solar, our solar system, the sun has roughly like 99% of, of the mass in our solar system. And because of that, and because gravity and all the other mechanics at work, planets orbit our sun. And the sun is the central thing that everything else circles around. For the Christian, 
Christ has to be center. He has to be the son. And when he is, you don't lose the other things. In fact, they get placed in their proper order and revolve around God at which they ought to. But if you put anything else in place of the son, something of lesser weight, it won't be able to bear the burden of everything else. And ultimately, you get a horrendous crash in the end of civilization and existence and everything else. So everything in their right place and their right order. And in the series, we're going to be looking at sort of the major things in our culture that kind of vie for that space, the top of the triangle. We're going to be looking at things like love and relationships. We're going to be looking at power in our culture. And uh, today, and I already previewed it, we'll be talking about money. Now, I joked, it's funny, like most, most people don't like when churches talk about money. I know this because people just like tell me. It's like, oh man, or if, like, if they know what's coming, uh, many of you, and it's not even to knock you, you've told me like, hey pastor, just letting you know I'm not coming in two weeks, I saw what's ahead, I was looking through the small group curriculum, and it's like, we, we just don't want to talk about it. Now here's the interesting thing, in our culture, we don't like talking about this, however, the Bible has no issue with talking about money. Like, it talks about it all of the time. If you were to um, kind of look at the Bible as a whole and compare some major things and compare them with money, some startling things come across. So, for example, the Bible talks about heaven roughly 691 times. And I'm being extremely generous with that count because, you know, oftentimes when the Bible's just talking about the sky, it says heaven. So I'm including every reference to heaven, the skies, the birds of the heavens. Like, that's all there 691 times. Okay? What the Bible talks about hell and all the different variations and different cognates. So some of you are familiar with terms like Gehenna and Sheol or the place of the dead. All of those, all those times, it's like every time the place of the dead, uh, Hades, Sheol, Gehenna, any time that's mentioned, roughly 107 times. So heaven, 691. Sheol, Gehenna, hell, Hades, all of that, 107. The discussion of money what you do with your wealth, your resources, your treasure, in particular, how you use your money to help um, the needy, how generous you are, what you do with your finances, roughly 2,650 times. Heaven, 691. Hell, 107. Hmm, hmm. Money, everything else, 2,650 times. So the Bible has like no issue Jesus had no issue talking about this, but we're the ones that kind of are a little uncomfortable, and there's probably a host of reasons. I'll suggest one. We'll just start off with with the conviction. Uh, It might be because some of us don't like anyone putting their hands on our precious little idol. It's like the precious, you know? So the Bible's comfortable with it. We need to be comfortable with it as well. So what I want to do today is just walk through several verses and let them do all the heavy work because like they're plain. There's not like, okay, we got to really dig deep into to the root meaning of this one word. It's like the stuff is simple and it's hard hitting. It's super convicting. So first one, hard one right, right off the bat. No one can serve two masters for he, he will either For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 
Now, many of you have heard this verse before, but you really need to stop and really think about this because it's like Jesus is saying, it is impossible to serve both God and money. And it kind of hints at, again, the monstrous nature of idolatry because it's, it's, it's like a master who you start serving, but it's not, it's not a, a person who is looking out for your good or a kind and merciful. It's this monster that ensnares you, traps you, enslaves you. And it lords its power over you. And Jesus says it is impossible to serve God and money. You can't do it. Now, most of the time we just look at that And if we're honest with ourselves, me included, you go, yep, can't serve God and money. Good thing I don't serve money. It's not me. It's for other, someone else. The greedy people, right? Bunch of greedy people. They need to let me, you know, show them this verse. Because no one really thinks they struggle with greed. No, I'm serious. Like, okay, check this out. I read this in a book almost a decade ago. It was the experience of a pastor, and it's been my experience, and it's held true ever since. Oftentimes, people will come, and they'll want to talk with me or a pastor, and they'll share things that are going on, deep struggles, and they want help. Pastor, I'm struggling with this. Uh, I'm struggling with this. My marriage is struggling with this. I got this problem in this, in this component of my life. And, you know, I just need to confess. I struggle with issues of, of lust. I struggle with issues of anger. I'm doing this and I know I shouldn't. I have never, ever had someone come in and say, Pastor, I'm a very greedy person. I love money. I want more of it. Not once. Not once. And because, you know, if you did, I'd be like, well, the Bible says we should bear each other burdens in Christ. And so I'm going to help you bear some of that. So instead of you buying nice things for yourself, you could buy nice things for me. No, 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 thank you. That's what a brother in Christ is for. And I'm going to help you carry this. You can start giving me nice things. But it doesn't happen. Like, and if we feel that sort of conviction, yeah, I'm sort of greedy, like we, we dismiss it like it's no big deal, right? Uh, you know, I should, I should worry about the bigger sins in my life, not the greed issue. But yet the Bible's like, no, man, this is serious stuff. You can't serve both God and money. One of the other issues that we usually run into when we think about money, wealth, riches, and all of that stuff is how we define how well off we're doing. Like when the Bible has all these strong words for the rich, we're like, amen. I wish Jesus was speaking that to me, but it doesn't apply because I'm not rich, you know? And that's, how, that's most of our default positions. Only 2% of Americans consider themselves wealthy. Uh, and a different, different uh, poll showed that only 13% of millionaires think they're well off. And Because no matter where you get, you're always going to compare so, so yourself to somebody who's like has slightly more than you or or your neighbors or someone in your neighborhood like you got you were fine when you were making this much money right and then you got this and it's like you worry about the same things you stress about the same it like it, it didn't change things that much and so you compare yourself to your neighbor like oh yeah you, we live in the same neighborhood but they he and his wife drive nicer cars than us or they were able to afford the remodel and we're not and let's say maybe you're doing better than your neighbor. What you immediately do is you start comparing yourself to the houses like a mile up the road. Those people are doing, they're pretty good, right? I'm not wealthy. I'm not well off. I'm just barely getting by type of thing. But then you, you look at the 
the, the big picture, you look at the big picture, both historically and globally, and you see how, how well off you actually are. You know, half the world's population lives on less than roughly $5.50 a day. There's just under a billion people that don't have access to clean drinking water. Just under a billion, precisely roughly 811 million are in the category of hungry. And you define the, the category of being in hunger as being in a situation where there's regularly, occasionally, days or multiple days where you don't have food to eat, or even if you had the resources, there's no food in your community to get. I mean, 15,000 children die every day from starvation, malnourishment, preventable diseases. You know, but we're, we're just barely getting by, you know? That's what we tell ourselves. And then you look at, you know, just, just our normal lives. We go... We, we can go into a grocery store and see mountains of food. Do you know what your ancestors would have done if they walked into a grocery store? They pro- I mean, something along the lines of, this, I've died. This is the promised land. This is heaven. We've made it. We've made it. We don't have to, we don't have to worry about food anymore. I don't say this, I've said this before, and I don't say it to be gross or anything, but you really need to put stuff in perspective. You relieve yourself. You go to the bathroom in cleaner water than hundreds of millions of people have access to. Like, stop for a second. You go to the bathroom in cleaner water than millions of people have access to. Like, the standard of living that we enjoy in, in this country is beyond something our ancestors could ever dream of. It's incredible. I mean, think about cars. And I'm not just talking about the travel. Like, they have climate control in them. If ever you feel slightly discomfort, a slight discomfort, it's, it's getting too hot in this vehicle. You have a magical climate control device in your car. You can cool it down. And if you're a little cold, you can heat it up. It's, it's, it's incredible. It's, it's, you just live in it every day, so you just become accustomed to it and used to it. But the way we're living is incredible. Now, in a congregation this size, and it's the beauty of it, there's diversity. We have people from different, different backgrounds, different economic backgrounds. And I know some of you are going like, no, Isaac, like you really, really don't know my situation. Like We're barely hanging on. And that's, that is true, I know, of, of, of some of you. And this is what is awesome about church. You come here, you get support, you find help, you find friendship, and that we're here to, to bear each other's burdens and to share in this. But for the most part, for the most part, most of us are enjoying a standard of living when it comes to wealth and riches, like not even, couldn't even dream it a thousand years ago. And for hundreds of millions of people, they, they, they can't dream of it today. It's just impossible. And so part of the problem is we don't think we're greedy and we don't even think we're well off. So it's like all the 2,605, 2,650 references to Scripture and money, it's like, oh, well, well if I ha- this would apply to me if I had some, you know? And you just kind of breeze over it. The Scriptures tell us this, As for the rich in the present age, 
charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. It's a great verse. It's so extremely practical. It's saying, for those people who are rich in this present age, like, don't be haughty. And this is what you need to do. Don't put your hope in riches. It's not bad in and of itself that you have this wealth, but don't put your hope in it because it's uncertain, first of all, and you have God to put your hope in. And riches are uncertain. You could lose it like this. The fortunes of this country could like go like this at any given moment. That's historically speaking, we know this. At any given moment, like the situation that you enjoy may come, come apart. And I'm not saying it's going to or I want it to. I'm just saying you don't know. So don't put your hope in something that's ever-changing and ever-fleeting. And Paul the Apostle says, don't put your hope and trust in riches, but put it in God. And then if you have resources, he says, you are to do good, to be rich in good works, and to be ready and ready to be generous and to share. Like, that's, that's the Christian. We're not just all about having nice things. We want to do good works, and we want to be generous to show the world who we belong to. It's extremely practical. In a different section of the book of 1 Timothy, the Apostle Paul says this, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pangs. Highlighted a couple, couple issues here. Paul is warning people who desire wealth and riches. He's warning them, saying, watch out, because many people who do that fall into temptation. And it's not a small temptation. It leads to ruin and destruction. And they end up wandering away from the faith. That's heavy. So, like, Paul's warning isn't like, oh, there's all these references in the Bible about money and greed. And so, you know, no big deal. It's like, stop. I need to warn you. This can lead to destruction. It can lead to your ruin. And so Paul is saying, and I'm saying today, not, not to shame anybody or to ever make people feel guilty, like, oh, you're so greedy, you don't share enough, you're not generous. That's not the point. Paul's motivation is, I want to warn you. I want to warn you. This isn't good for your soul. You desire more and more, and the more you acquire, you want more and more, and nothing ever satisfied satisfies. It will lead to destruction. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, um, be, on guards against, be on guard against all sorts of greed. It's really interesting because it's, he's like, watch out for there's all sorts of greed or all different types of greed. And that language isn't really used in Scripture for other types of sins or other issues. Like, it's, you're never going to be beyond guard for all sorts of different types of stealing. And it's probably because if you're stealing something, you know you're stealing it. Like, or if you're breaking one of the Ten Commandments, you're murdering someone. You, you're consciously aware, like, I'm, I'm doing something wrong. I'm murdering. The scary thing about greed is you don't know when you're being greedy for the most part. 
It sneaks up on you. And then it's just a part of your lifestyle. It's a part of who you are. So Jesus says, be on guard against all sorts of greed. Because there's different ways, different ways it sneaks into your life. So you have to be on guard against it. And we live in a culture that is, man, it's making the temptation all the stronger and the subtlety and sort of creepiness all, all the more powerful. I mean, if you're just watching any sort of media at all, there's constant commercials that are selling you something. And the way they're selling it to you, for the most part, is either they're trying to scare you, that like something really bad is going to happen if you don't have this product. They're trying to, to talk about like how it will enhance your, your status. So you're just watching a car commercial and it's like, it's all about showing you how like, if you have this, man, now you're somebody. And there's, there's different ways they approach you, but ultimately they're saying, if you have this, your, your life will be better. And sometimes they're as bold to say like, if you get, if you get this, then you'll, you'll finally be happy. And the crazy thing is all these temptations in our culture, they actually work. They work. I know for me, um, I, see, I see any like cool new gadget and it's like, you know, this da 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 da. Imagine your life with this. I'm like, yeah. Dude, if I had that Bluetooth speaker, I think life would be better. Like, it, it, you, know, you, don't, you don't stop and think about what it's doing, but in actuality, those, like, it's, it's working those things on you. The new phone, the new car, the new speaker, whatever it may be. Fill in whatever you're... you're. Like, we all have different things we like. Some of you, if it's hiking, man, you see like a, a new like backpack. It's like, oh man, the way it saves space and how light it is, man, this is going to make hiking better and thus it will make life better. And again, it's not to say that a speaker, a backpack is wrong if you buy it. But I want you to be aware of just how subtle you begin to think, like if I just get this, life, I'll be happy. I'll be happy. I used to years ago, but by God's grace, grew out of this. But I used to, like every year, wait for the new, a new iPhone to be released. And I would watch um, the Apple events. Be like, dude, this, this, this new iPhone. And, and unknowingly, I'm, I'm almost thinking about it like, this is actually, it's gonna, it, it said it's going to make me more productive. The, the device that's connected to all the social media stuff is going to make me more productive. I believed it. And, you know, it, it's going to be faster and better, and it's going to have a better, and it's gonna, this is, this is going to be awesome. And you know what? Every year I watch those Apple events, and at some point, Tim Cook would say, this is our best iPhone yet. And I go, it is. It really is. It's the best iPhone there ever was. And the iPhone is the best phone there ever Dude every time. And then like at certain point, this is how, this is how ridiculous it is and how, how much it, it ensnares you and how like ridiculous it makes you thinking. You go, it took about a decade worth of God's sanctification in my life. You know, I think they say it's the best iPhone yet every time. I, I think they really do believe every time. And you go, yeah, because it's not like they're going to come out and say, you know, we put these out every year so everyone upgrades. And uh, this is actually kind of like a mediocre one, but we 
we upped a few things. You got 30 more minutes of battery life. Come buy it. Like, it, they're not going to do that. And again, do you hear what I'm saying? There's nothing wrong with having a nice piece of technology, but what it's doing to you is it's slowly making you believe that if I just get this, then I'll be happy. Now, how many times in life have you done that? With a relationship? With a vacation? With a house? With a car? With the weekend? Literally, with the weekend. If I could just get to this, then I'll be happy. That's how it works. So what are we to do? 1 Timothy 6, 6 6-8 says, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Let me paraphrase this. This is, um, learn to be content in light of your coming death. No, I'm serious. Learn to be content in light of the fact you're going to die sooner than you think. With contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we're not going to take anything out. So learn to be content. You can't buy yourself out of death. You're not going to take your material possessions with you to the other side of death. Like all the the material things you love most have been sentenced to this earth. They're not going with you. And one day, you're going to return. (laughs) Says, you know, you brought nothing in, ain't taking anything out. You're not going to be on your deathbed going like... The old man Isaac, son, son, I wish you would have upgraded my phone (laughs) one last time. One last time, one last upgrade. Or actually, I should say, maybe you will, because you've become so enslaved to those things that you're, you're just full-on addicted to material gain. But you're, not gonna do, you're most likely not going to do that. And you're not going to, like, you know, be regretting a, even a big decision. Like, we should have got the house that was 200 square more feet. Life would have been so much better. You're just not going to do that. You're not going to, like, pull your wife close and say, like, remember when we got the SUV and we had that argument about if we should upgrade the model and get the better one? Hun... I sure would have liked the extra cup holder. It would have been so good. I could have had an energy drink for energy and then a water bottle for hydration. Energy and hydration always by my side, dear. It would have been so great. Like, you're just not going to do that. And we all know that, right? I, I, I'm, I'm almost pointing out the ridiculous of it because we all know this. But somehow the temptations sneak on us and they work on us. So Paul says, learn contentment because you ain't taking anything with you. Now, how do you do that? Because it's, it's very easy to say, don't, don't be greedy. Learn to be content. It's like, okay, well, how do you do that? Like, easier said than done, right? Philippians, Paul the Apostle writing to the church in Philippi. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Very popular Bible verse, Philippians, the end of it, 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I hope you see the context of it, though. It's not, it's not 
really about like winning a basketball game or winning the World Series. It's about enduring life's hardship and learning to be content in Christ in the midst of suffering. Paul says, I could do this because of Christ, he strengthens me. But then listen to this. He says, I have learned the secret. And you're going like, okay. What's the secret? I'm, tr- I'm trying. I don't want to be greedy. I want to be like you, Paul. I want to be like you, Paul. You know, what's, and he doesn't explicitly say it here, but a few verses earlier, I think he gives us a clue into what he's talking about. It's a very popular Bible verse. It's probably some of, your fa- some of you here's favorite Bible verse. But I think for Paul, this is, this is dealing with the secret into to not being greedy and to being content in Christ. Philippians 3, 8 through 9. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Emphasis on the first part. I count everything as loss because of. The other stuff, it doesn't matter like it used to. It's not as important as it used to be. Because I found the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And I count all those other things as rubbish. And if you've gone to church forever, you've probably heard a preacher say that the Greek word for rubbish here is skubalon. It means dung or garbage. And that's true. So Paul is saying, I count everything like animal dung compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. In other words, the reason why other things don't matter that much is not because I told myself, don't be greedy, don't be greedy, they're not that important, they're not that important, you don't need this, you don't need that. He's discovered something that is so valuable that in comparison, they no longer have the power over him that what they once did, which sort of gets back to, our, to kind of the original idea. Is Paul is saying, I have found the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And that is such a treasure and so incredible and so awesome that knowing him, being found in him, belonging to him, that makes these other things begin to seem less important in my life. And some of you know this, by the way. Like, not because you learned it through, through deep meditation, but let's say life hits you hard like a train. And then all of a sudden you feel as if you've got nothing but Christ in those moments. And all of a sudden you're clinging to Christ and things that you used to care about, things that you used to worry about, things that you used to stress about, you don't care about those. You're just clinging to the one thing that you have and the thing that is most valuable. It's similar to um, like a new couple, right? Some of you, this, this was your story. You know, you get engaged and... Dude's like, you know, we don't have any money. The ring I'm going to get you, it ain't much. We're going to live in this tiny, tiny, tiny apartment. Landlord's not going to fix things, so we're going to have to put out some pots to get the water. You know, it's not going to be good. But what do you tell each other? It doesn't matter. Like, we ha- we've got each other, Right? And in one sense, it's sort of like cheesy, but it's not. It's like, no, we, we love each other and we have each other. I don't care about the car or the ring or the apartment or the house. We have each other and that's what matters. 
And so in a very similar way, when you discover the true worth of Christ, you're like, I have him. And that's not like a, a twist where you're trying to say, well, I got to convince my, myself Christ is really valuable even though he's not. Like, no, the infinite God, the maker of heaven and earth, knows you and loves you, and he gives himself to you. He poured himself out to you. And you say, if I have that, then, man, these other things aren't as important to me. And when you set your eyes on Christ, watch the power of the grip of those idols begin to loosen. It's, it's a fruitless endeavor to be like, I got to be less greedy, I got to be less greedy. You're a human being. You were made to desire things. The problem is not your desire and your affection. It's the way in which, the place in which you place them. So you begin to set your desires and hope and trust upon Christ. And then I'm telling you, things just begin to lose some of their power in your life. I don't really, really need this. Okay. Diagnostics test time. Because it's pretty straightforward everything that we've been talking about. So what I want to do is just let, let us walk through three quick things that give us a test on how we're doing with the issue of, of money, greed, possessions, wealth, and the power it has over us. So three quick, like, tests, a diagnostics test. I want you to think about your spending. Are you spending in such a way that demonstrates Christ is that which is most important? And here's just a test. If someone were to magically look at all your receipts, and they actually made sense, because receipts never really make sense, and they could see exactly how you were using your money in every possible way, would they be able to tell that you're a Christian? Is your spending any different than someone who is not a Christian? So, like what you spend on entertainment, and what type of entertainment. You know, because there's two layers to that. Actual amounts of entertainment consumption, and then the types of things. And they'd look at this category, and this category, and they'd look all around, and at some, if they looked at everything, would they be able to say, this person spends their money in a different way than an average American? It's pretty convicting, right? It's super convicting. Like, would we be, like, just if we looked at everything, would someone be able to tell, and I'm not saying they, they know where you go to church or you're, you're a certain type of Christian, just where they go, no, this person's different. They spend their money differently. After 2,650 references to money, wealth, possessions, and what we do with it, it becomes difficult to say that, like, if you're not following Jesus with your money, to what degree are you actually following him? That's heavy. It's very convicting. And the, sec the second test, and it's very similar, but just how generous of a person are you? Um, there's different stats and different research that's been done on this, so these are rough estimates, but um, of all Christians in this country, roughly three to five percent of them give portions of their income away. Follow that? That sounded like an error. It's not. Of all the people who claim to be Christian in our country, a very small portion are giving their portions of their income away. 
And you can say, yeah, of course, because pretty much like 80% of Americans say they're Christian, but, you know, none of them are really going to church or anything. Okay, we'll put that to the side. We know that the percentage of people who regularly tend to church that are regularly giving and being generous with their money is very small as well. It's, it's, it's much greater than 5%, but it's still, it's still short. And so the question is, it's like, if you're, if you're a follower of Jesus, are you taking a portion of your money and dedicating it to the advancement of his kingdom? And, and I'm telling you this, I, I'm, I promise you, I'm, I'm not telling you this to, to make you feel guilty, or this is one of those things where it's like, you know, the church, we got to find more ways to make more money, so better give one of those money sermons. I'm telling you this for the sake of your soul. It's not good for you not to be a generous person. It really isn't. The Bible isn't saying these verses, and look how horrible of a person you are. It's saying, you're doing this to your own destruction. Like, learn to trust God with portions of this. Become a generous person. Become a generous person. And why are you a generous person? Because you believe you have something more valuable that's stored away in a safe bank that nothing in heaven or hell can disrupt. And because of that, I could be more generous with earthly possessions. And it flows out of it. it, doesn't, it's, not a, it's not a guilt or a shame thing. So consider, if you're not being generous, if you're not dedicating a portion of your earnings, your giving, your income to, to some type of kingdom work, you should consider doing that. And oftentimes what we do is we, we have this excuse for, you know, I've been told that Christians ought to give 10% or they have some number in their head. And so, and so they go, well, I can't make that jump, so I'm going to push it off for six months when I'm making more money. You know what happens to everything in life that you push off? <laughs> it's never going to happen. So start somewhere, and I mean that, even if it's 2%, 3%, 1%, 5%, do something. Start learning to give and trusting God with that. Last test is about worrying. Um, how often do you worry about money? How much is it on your mind? And I'm telling you, this whole sermon is directed at me as well. I stress about all of these things, and we're in a climate now. It's like rising cost of this, rising cost of that. Don't you know it's the end of the world? Bacon has quadrupled in, in price. What are we going to do, Lord? It's the end times. Like, there's inflation, gas prices. So I get it. Like, there's all kinds of money worries. I struggle with this as well. But you know what Jesus says? It's like, man, do you look at them birds? Does God take care of them? Don't worry about tomorrow. Trust me. And listen to me. I am not saying don't think critically about your money. You should be extremely wise and extremely thoughtful and intentional with your spending and what you're doing with it. You should be wise and thoughtful. That is not the same as stressing out and worrying about things. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you're, you've worried about stuff that you don't even have to worry about. That's, that's the, 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 the monstrous nature of the idol. You're up stressing about something that if you were thinking rationally, you don't even have to stress about that. But there you are. And so how do you break all of this stuff? You remind yourself 
of that which is most valuable in your life. And you pray to God to, to that you, he would grow you and mature you so that you could become a generous person, not just with your money, but with your time, because time is like the currency of our culture as well. With your time and your resources and your love, that you'd become a generous person because you've received so much, it flows from you. Here's one of my favorite verses, and this will transition us into communion. Hebrews 13, 5 through 6. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You see the power of that. Keep your life free from the love of money. Don't let money become an idol. Keep your life free from that. How? By being content with what you have. And why and how can you be content with what you have? How does that work? You remind yourself, you've been given Christ. He has given himself to you. And he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. So you can, no matter in riches or in poverty, you can say confidently, Christian, you can say this with confidence. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? So when you, you don't get the raise that you've been really wanting to get, that you've convinced yourself will just make everything better, when you don't get that, I still have Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as my Lord, that's a treasure far more than any, any little bonus. And so when, when you lose the job and it seems like things are overwhelming, you know I still have Christ. When the bill collectors are calling Call, they're going to keep calling, but you know what? No matter what, I know I still have Christ. If you lose your house, I still got him. I belong to him and he belongs to me. And when your life falls apart all around you and it appears that you've wasted so much value in things that you know you ought not to, you know even in that failure, I still have Christ and I could confidently say, the Lord is my helper. He is my help. What can man do to me? He will never leave me or forsake me. And hopefully a very long time from now when you're on your deathbed, you won't be clinging to any material possessions trying to take them with you. You won't flinch at death. You will look it in the eye and say, Christ is my confidence. He is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? He will never leave me or forsake me. That is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. And when you put him on top and rightly order your life, you will live the life he intended you to. You will break the grip of idols. So learn to be content. Learn to be generous. Start somewhere. Start being generous and treasure Christ above all. Let's stand as we take communion.